Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I am Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Quite a show today. I got to be honest with you. I got to be honest with you. I went down into the American South, to North Carolina, to Durham and Charlotte, and... Uh, had a pretty amazing, cathartic time. Great shows. I'll tell you about that in a second. Today on the show, Trey Crowder, the uh, comedian who has become known as the liberal redneck comedian, will be on a little while from now. Lena Dunham stopped by to talk for a few about uh, the new season of Girls and some of the other stuff she's doing. So, Durham. I, I always like going down there i you know i've been to uh, raleigh a few times i've been to charlotte a few times it's pretty but uh i sold out the carolina theater there and uh i i still didn't know what to expect but boy what it was great but the great thing was is that i know people there i know mac mac who's been on this show from merge records from the band super chunk i got to my hotel within 15 minutes man he came over we rushed over to the nasher museum at on the duke campus Saw an opening of work by uh, Nina Chanel Abney. This beautiful, big canvas is a lot of color, a lot of themes. It just, you know, and that place had a bunch of people there. It's a beautiful museum, a beautiful space for art. Just, you know, a celebration of diversity in the human spirit. People taking it in, nourishing the soul, being around the art. Had a little few hors d'oeuvres. Then we split. And I uh, went right over to the Durham Hotel, which is where I was staying, and his wife, an award-winning chef, Andrea, uh, she uh, it's her restaurant over there at the hotel. And yeah, slept in, took a walk around, went over to the merge offices, saw how the sausage was made, and then me and uh, Mac and a couple of dudes that worked over there wa- walked over to Carolina Soul, the used record store right there in Durham. I picked up James Brown's Reality. And uh, Patty Smith's Easter, got a t-shirt, said hi to the fellas, and then later went over to uh, the Carolina Theater. And uh, my opening act was uh, a girl named Blair Niaz, and uh, my buddy Brian Mallow, also a guy I started out with back in, I didn't start out with him, but I knew him back in uh, 
San Francisco. He happened to live there, too. He reached out, so I let him do a spot on the show. Place was packed. It was very cathartic. It was very raw. It was very real. And uh, it was very funny and relieving. And it was nice to see everybody. And I felt good after the show. Went back to the hotel, crashed, woke up the next morning, ran into a couple people from the show, just one who had just gone to a bakery and bought a lemon chess pie. Where the fuck do you get chess pie? Nowhere but the South. So they were like, they love, we love the show. Do you want a piece of this? We're just driving. We got to drive an hour out into the country where we live. Had a great time at the show. Talked for a while. Had the guy in the kitchen slice me off a piece of that pie. Ate that shit for breakfast plus some other pastries, got jacked on sugar, passed out. Got my rent-a-car, drove two and a half hours to Charlotte, however long it was. Drove straight on through, stopped for gas, got a little taste of the uh, the town <laughs> along the highway, the uh, gas station. Felt like it, felt like North Carolina, but it was good. There's good people down there. Then I got to, uh, got to Charlotte, checked into the fancy hotel, Whenever that place is crazy at night, man. Charlotte is a fucking shit show at night. Just like people packed out, dancing, partying in the streets. It's crazy. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> I do know that it, there's something going on there. But that show was amazing too. I did the night theater and you know pulled in about 900 people or so. Again, just you know connected, rode it out. Did about almost two hours. Uh, both nights, very appreciative crowds, and, and again, a very emotional and cathartic uh, experience. Good nights of comedy, uh, good nights of uh, community, and it, it was beautiful because you know a lot of people don't uh, don't do North Carolina anymore because of the um, HB two legislation. The LGBTQ community has uh, had a rough fight down there. A lot of people don't perform down there. I think it's hurt the state a great deal, but I decided to go and I'm going to kick in a good chunk of the um, proceeds that I got, the fee to uh, charities. I'm going to I'm going to put most of it into uh, equalitync.org and I'm going to put a little bit into uh, the Carolina Tiger Rescue, which is not, you know, a social cause, but uh, they need some money because they're, you know, they got to keep them big cats alive. They take in tigers and leopards and uh, all kinds of strange exotic cats that people buy as pets or zoos, roadside attractions, or they, they just, they got all these cats down there that they're keeping alive and saving. Very exotic, large cats, and they just took in a bunch, so I'm going to put a little money there, but most of the money I will be uh, sending to uh, equalitync.org. But uh, like I said, it was uh, like there were great shows, man. And it was great to be out. You know, once I got out, it was great to be out. And I do want to thank the people who came out and saw me. So that's my update. All right. Lena Dunham was in town. The last season of Girls is on. And uh, she also does a thing called LennyLetter.com. Uh, is the uh, culture website she runs and Women of the Hour is her podcast. This is me in a little chat with uh, 
Ms. Dunn. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. You seem like you're in pretty good spirits, Marin. I'm okay. It's really day-to-day, depending what my brain does to me. I'm terrified all the time. Mm -hmm. Your energy's (laughs) positive. I don't know what to do. I'm trying to keep a positive energy. Pull that mic into your face. You've got a positive energy right now. Like, I came in and I was like, I don't know, expecting something a little dark. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, you should have come in a half hour earlier. Ask, <laughs> ask the people that came with you who were here a half hour early how my energy was. That's amazing. Hey, I'm a professional entertainer. I can turn it on. <laughs> That's in- Well, I feel it. I came in and I was like, we're doing pretty good considering all of this. Oh, my God. Yeah, talk to my girlfriend about it. Talk to my friends. <laughs> But uh, I'm always uh, happy to hear that you're dating. I've been with this woman a few years, I think, two and a half years, about. Two and a half years, so that She's means- a painter. So you were beginning to date her when you came and did Girls. Yes, yes. I remember that, because you were like, I'm with a painter, and I was like, well, yeah. you're always with somebody, so how am I going to keep track of this? Yeah, she's an abstract painter. She's very good. She's the real deal. You know about painters. Yes, I do. That's you live so with g- painters. That's so great. And does she live here at the cat ranch? No, she lives down the street on her own ranch. Does She's that got... work better for you? Yes. That's great. Yeah, there's no risk of destroying it just from uh, claustrophobia. I love it. <laughs> Boy, I love it. Don't you find that uh, if you can manage... Like she, got, she got her own house. She has a studio. Mm-hmm. So we spend a lot of time together, but there is that ability... Not to be so far up each other's asses that uh, that that causes problems. Yeah, Jack and I lived for a while in a studio apartment, and it wasn't the best thing for our relationship. And then once we and we were once we had more space, we were yeah. like, oh, our problems went away. That, oh, did they? Kind of. Is yeah. That true? I mean, we have different problems, but the problems of the studio apartment went away. What now? Tell me about painters. Tell me about now. I'm starting to find that. Um, your dad's a painter. My dad's a painter, yeah. And she likes his work. And she, you know, he's a real guy, real painter guy. He's a real painter guy. He's um, what's been referred to by people as a painter's painter, which is that a lot Oof. of painters yeah. love his work. That's always like that. That that painter's painter or comics comic that always comes with a little a little bittersweetness. I know because you're a little bit like, well, why can't I just be the world's painter? Yeah. But why it usually comes with sort of, well, I'd like to be selling like the painter who thinks I'm the painter's painter. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting. Whenever I meet a painter, they're always like, your dad had such an influence on me. His work is so important to me. Because, you know, also painting is not just straight up painting. We have so many options now with media. Right. That just being a straight up painter who goes into a studio with brushes and paint is becoming increasingly rare. People are always like, I work in mixed media. I digitally print and then I curl things on it. And like my dad... 
goes in every day and he paints and that's what he does. The way they think, like, I don't know if it's common, but they sort of have their own time zone, don't they? Like, they're very sort of sensitive, kind of like poetic people that, uh, you know, just stay in that groove where you're just, you know, thinking about a canvas or working with a canvas and finishing a canvas. I just feel like she uh, exists in this... Uh, sort of uh, hyper-real, you know, very uh, intuitive reality. Well, it's so funny. I call my dad. It's I feel exactly what you're saying. And he works, usually he starts working around like 6 a.m. And he'll work from like 6 to 11, then take some time in the afternoon, then go back in and work until dinner. And yeah. then maybe he'll go back in a little bit after dinner. And when I call my dad in the studio, which I do, he has a barn that's outside his house where he paints. And yeah. I call him in the studio and he'll like he always answers the same way. Like he's like, "Hello, doll," as if he's like incredibly surprised that it's me, even though only like two of us have his phone number. <laughs> yeah. And then he's always like, "I can feel the clock ticking on our conversation because he has to get back to what he's doing." But sometimes I make fun. He's like, "I gotta go. I'm right in the middle of something," and I'm like, "Yeah, you've got to go. You're filling in a bird. Like yeah. you're literally." I'm like, I want to make fun of him because I'm like, "There's nobody there with you. It's actually not urgent. The only urgency is that like." You have decided that this is the 10 minutes in which you're going to fill in this bird. Or they're on a roll or they're in it. You know, I mean, it's that thing about being in it. You know, He's like, like always in it, which makes me crazy because he just goes in there and drops in it. And yeah. the thing that's cool about being a painter is also even on a day that you're not inspired, there's busy work for you to do. So it's like if he's not feeling like he's creating new things, he's filling in you know, an entire, like yeah, yeah, 10 do, feet yeah, of right. space with purple paint. Right, he's done the, you know, he's you know, preparing to do the other work. Exactly, but it's interesting. Like, my mom is a photographer and a filmmaker, and she's totally different, and her work's super social, and she's, like, more like me. She's always sort of, like, tortured and annoyed at somebody and yeah. figuring out how to get something done. And my dad's process is, like, so solitary, and really the only time that he gets seems to have frustrating interactions with other people is when it's time to, like, hang a show and then... He's got to explain the idea that's been in his head to other people, which right. he does with lots of tiny diagrams. Yeah, of course. It's got to mm -hmm. be right. Everything's got to be right. It's got to be sitting on the wall just perfect. I'm going with my dad. My dad's having a painting show in Oslo. And so we're go I'm going next week to Oslo with my dad for five days. And I haven't traveled with him like that since- Have you been to Oslo? I have been to Oslo. Weird fact- I feel like I can brag about my dad's like really famous in Norway. He's a, he's a famous in Norway guy? Yeah, it's like he's big in Norway. Like he like knows the queen of Norway. I don't know how it happened. And one time I asked a Norwegian, I was like, why are you guys so into them? And he was, they were like, we are, have a very dark, we have a very dark aesthetic. And like uh -huh. your father's work speaks to the anger and darkness of Norway. Wow. Well, that's great because painters need uh, patrons. If they're not just, you know, rich people who may not get the painting, it's nice to have the support, the aesthetic support of an entire sensibility that's another country. He, like, has a whole life in Norway. And so I haven't gotten to travel with my dad and I used to travel alone together a lot and yeah. like do weird things like take the overnight train to Canada and like we like the same kinds of things. Yeah. And I haven't gotten to travel with my dad since the sh the show started. So it's been years. 8 years. 8 years. So I was like my dad like kind of said like hey if you want to come to Norway and he was so shocked that I was like yes I do. So we're going to spend 5 days together in Norway and I can't wait cuz I haven't watched him hang a show since I was a little girl. So I'm like ah. excited to just hang around the gallery and watch him do yeah. his thing cuz that Time was my, travel. Yeah, that was my whole childhood was just like sitting around the gallery with my dad and like a bunch of hot guys measured things <laughs> and I like played in a coloring book. And now I'm basically going to do the same thing only I'll be 30. Yeah, no coloring book probably. No, and my dad's really like 
my dad's like a real, I don't know how to, ex- when I watched that movie, Captain Fantastic, the Viggo yeah. Mortensen, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is so great, where like there's the dad who's sort of like trying to raise his children off the reservation. Mm-hmm. Like my dad's not that, but he is a little like trying to constantly impress upon me that everything that the universe says is important isn't and every, you know, so basically the last- Big concept. Big concept. So basically the last like six years of my life and like becoming a celebrity and all of that is like- He's proud of me as a creative person, but all of that's like revolting to him and like a kind of um, a false narrative Uh that's been created by a broken culture. So he's Uh excited for me to step back and hang out in Norway. Are you excited to step away from uh, the false narrative created by a broken culture? (laughs) Isn't that super special? I was like hanging out with my dad. It happens happening daily now. I know. Every 10 minutes. There's the a new false, false narrative. narrative created by a broken culture. Yeah, if you want to get deep, he's the person to get deep with. I mean, he'll basically tell you that like Donald Trump is a hologram. Oh, and he'll support that? I mean, he doesn't believe he's an actual hologram, but he'll explain that Donald Trump is like a kind of a figurehead for like the endless pain of a society that's been feeding upon itself. I mean, my dad's just wow. like, he's very philosophical. I did, why, you should have brought him. He's more, I had him on my podcast, on my Women of the Hour podcast, and we talked for a long time about his relationship to psychedelic drugs, and I found him to be the best guest because he said really insane things in a totally monotone voice. So he'd be like, yeah, when I dropped, you know, this, when I took a massive dose of acid and locked myself into a room for five days, I did learn a lot about triangles. And you're like, but he's saying it like he's an economist. And so it's a super, it's like, I'm like, you don't know how funny you are. You're the funniest. He was honest research. Yeah. I mean, and I had to convince him. I was like, he was like, you have a podcast. I was like, yeah, it's like on the charts. Like, like people listen Millions of people listened to it, and he was like, oh, like he just had no idea to podcast, Yeah, no idea that really there would be any, why we would have a conversation on, and he was like, I don't know why you'd want to talk to me, but sure, and he came into the studio. Uh, and see that? They have their, they're in their own place. Yeah, that's Painters very painterly. Yeah, it is, right? Yeah. So how's that podcast going? What's called Woman of the Hour? Woman of the Hour, thank you so much. I was, you know, I really thought about you when I was doing it, because- Interviews, interviewing people in a thoughtful and easygoing way mm-hmm. is a challenge. And I thought about how you're one of the greats. <laughs> and so I had a lot of a great time doing it. I just did the second Was season. Was there a learning curve? Yes. My first interviews were like, I have prepared nine questions. All of them have the word hegemony in them. <laughs> And you, I was like, no, I want to be cool like Mark Marin. But it also is a podcast about like modern feminism and women's issues. So it's yeah. a different, we're hitting a different audience. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I keep mine pretty broad. <laughs> I don't, get, I don't my, get that specific. My yeah, boyfriend think, makes fun of the podcast. He's like, on today's episode, we'll interview the first woman to play a very specific kind of flute. Like he's like, it's just so like... <laughs> Like, I turned into, like, weird NPR lady, and <laughs> yeah. he thinks it's so... Like, I was like, have you listened to the podcast? He's like, sure, yeah, it's the one where a woman did a thing. Right. Secretly, I think my podcast is about me. Well, I've known that for a long time. Like, <laughs> your monologues are... Even if there's an episode where I'm like, I'm not that interested in hearing what that person has to say. Although, yeah. admittedly, you always surprise me, and I step away I being I like, get surprised. I'm always like, that person's pretty smart. Yeah. 
but I'll always listen to your really self-flagellating monologue. Well, thank you. I, I think you're a minority, but I appreciate that. <laughs> That's my paranoia. But uh, how is Jack Antonoff? How is he? He's great. He's so busy and good, and he's make. Is he producing big records and he, things? He is. So he's right now. He's producing um, the Lord new Lord album, which comes uh-huh. out soon, and then um, he works. I feel like I'm not at liberty to say the other three, but he's yeah. working on three big albums, and then he's the number one song on iTunes right now that really? he wrote and produced the from Fifty Shades Darker, the film. It's a song called I Don't Want to Live with Who? Zayn Malik and Taylor Swift. Oh, he did that? That's his yeah, song? Yeah. No, Jack's like, he's, he's on- He's big time. He is. I went with him- Did I read that? Did he tour with an old band of his recently? Or did I, am I making that up? No, he reunited with his like- his Like, like Steel early, Train? Steel Train, his early 20s band. A hippie band? They are a hippie band. Yeah. Yeah, he loves you. He loved being on this show. Well, we talked about the hippie music for a while. That was a good interview. It was his, Jack is interesting because I always say that he's like a musician who yeah. is the soul of a comedy writer. Like right. He is like the tortured soul of a comedy writer. Yeah. But just happens to be making pop music. It just, I thought it was, I thought that whole element of him, you know, seeking solace and refuge in that music because it was comforting in a dark time and then realizing that it was not his music necessarily. Yeah. No, he's had. It's interesting because he's had a lot of different phases, and I don't want to speak for him, but I will. Mm -hmm. As his partner of half a decade, I guess I can say this, which is that I feel like he's had a lot of phases of, like, what is my music? And he ultimately realized, like, he's a pop musician. He likes it. He likes to pop. He likes to pop. But, like, he brings depth and power and emotion to pop. And pop is, like, the language of love, and it's the language of connection, and it's, like, the language of our youth. And so it has validity. And it's also the language of the music business. It's also the language of money. Yeah. And I want to stop working at some point. So that'll be no. Yeah, I'm, too, I'm ready. I'm literally all the time. I'm like, I'm very. You ready to retire? Pull out? Well, I don't know if I'm ready to retire and pull out, but I have lots of projects that aren't, uh, that I want to do that aren't like. Um, pull out of the false narrative created by a broken culture. I mean, literally. My dad's <laughs> like, what did my dad say recently? I think it's time for you to disappear for a while. Yeah. And I was like, cool. Like, yeah. That sounds cool. Yeah. I think about it a lot. Yeah. I'm getting teared up thinking about it. I know. It's really emotional. Yeah. And it's But a lot of the projects I have coming up aren't like big I mean, we have. I'm working on a lot of stuff with Jenny that we're thrilled about, but there's a lot of stuff I want to do that I wouldn't describe as like big hot, big hot money projects that yeah. everybody wants like to the, see. Like, what's the LennyLetter.com? Well, LennyLetter.com is Jenny and my twice weekly feminist newsletter. Jenny Connor. Jenny Connor, who's my partner and my friend and your yeah. friend. Yeah, producer and uh, partner. Partner. Yeah, we're create like. It's beyond just like, I know a lot of people are like, I have a producing partner, but like, she's my creative partner and my, in many ways, my life partner. Mm-hmm. In many ways, I have Jack and I have Jenny and that's my, those are my people. It's good to have a couple. I know, it is. For different reasons. It is. It Plus, is. There's, it's good to have one you don't have sex with. Yeah, I have, a, I have a similar relationship with my producer and business partner and then I have my uh, my girlfriend. Like, I, there, there's, paran- but I think that you and Jenny, well, that's not true. Me and Brendan are pretty tight, but I know there's on, only so much of uh my bullshit that he'll indulge sometimes. <laughs> Jenny doesn't indulge all my bullshit. That's I good. mean, Jenny's very much just like, like if I'm going down some kind of spiral, she'll straight up stop texting me back in a good, like <laughs> in just to send the signal of like, I do not feel I can be helpful here. And like, please make contact when this is concluded right. in a supportive way. It's, it's her nice way of saying of it. It's her nice way of saying it's not all about you. Yes. Which by the way is like one of the, like I feel a lot like, when I started Girls, I was like a feral 
in, I, I knew how to do this certain thing, which was right, but I was very feral in that I didn't have a lot of normal female friendships. Yeah. I was extremely attached to my parents. I still lived with them. I yeah. didn't really have normal adult interactions. I'd never had like a real job besides like working part-time in baby clothes sales. Like yeah. I wasn't... And Jenny really taught me how to be a grown-up. Like she was the one who was like, when you're upset, yeah, you can't just walk out of the room and like hold your head in the bathroom for 45 minutes and then return like everything's normal. Like you sit there. Like she was yeah. the one who kind of taught me how to interact as a business person, as a friend, yeah. as a partner to a boyfriend, which is something I didn't ever really think I would be. Like, there's so much. I mean, Jenny's- She taught you how to be a grown-up. She taught me how to be a grown-up, well, which is a big job. And she has two kids of her own, so no one told her she had to do it, but she did it, and I'm very grateful. Yeah, and it seems like the uh, the advice you got from your dad's a little abstract at times and maybe not so practical. Well, my dad's thing, that's very true. And my dad's thing is very much like, his vibe's very like, fuck it. Like, if you're not feeling, not having a good day in the writer's room, move to Tibet. Like, it's a very, that's... For for the day. Yeah, like, his vibe is very much like, we don't have to live within this. (laughs) Like, he's always trying to figure out how to, like, game this. I mean, he's not off the grid, but he's figured out a great way to, like, make his life extremely, really work for him. And what about your mom? What'd you learn from her? My mom is really interesting. My mom is like an artist, but she's also a very shrewd business person. Mm-hmm. And she's extremely um, self-possessed and she doesn't take any bullshit. So that's a role model. Yeah, she's a role model. My right. mom is a role model. We're like really good friends. So what is Lenny Letter? So Lenny Letter is something that Jenny and I created because we wanted to basically have a platform not only for women to engage with each other on on the issues of the day, on feminist issues, but also a place to sort of elevate other women's voices the way that our voices have been elevated by having the platform of the show. So it's everything from personal essays to political commentary to letting you know how you can contact your local rep to like a piece about nail care. Like we're really kind of running the gamut of things that are interesting to women because women contain multitudes and there's no one size fits all. And we wanted to create a snark free, sort of emotionally pure place for women to um, hopefully be comforted in this crazy time in history. So we put it out twice a week. I'm super proud of it. I love, and I'm proud of it not because I'm, you know, because it's like some shiny example of my creative work. I'm proud of it because I feel like our editor-in-chief, Jess Gross, and Jenny and I have been able to create a space where women feel really, really safe to express themselves. And that's all I ever wanted because I haven't always felt safe expressing myself. And people are coming? And going yes. and doing it? We have like we have our Lennies. Like there's there's a nice strong pocket of devoted ladies and some men who really read it and really consider it and really respond to it. And it's one of the first times I really understood because with girls, so much of the conversation around it got lost in like, you know, when you have a show on HBO, people who don't get it and don't get what you're trying to do are still going to watch it and still going to have something to say. Right. And like Lenny's more of the kind of thing where its audience found it. And so everybody who's engaged is engaged because it's their thing. And so a lot of the like crazy noise that existed around the show that you had to parse through just to kind of connect to people who yeah. might understand you yeah. is not there with Lenny because the people who are reading it or the people who really want to be reading it. Not so it must be very, like, um, I, unlike the show, I imagine that if you sit down and look at the engagement or the feedback, 
of that that it, it's it must be satisfying in a different way completely and same with the podcast like those are two you feel things like you're doing like, a service you feel like you're doing a service and i don't and and also that they're doing a service for you sure like, I mean, do you feel this way about people who watch the show? Like, wow, how did I find listen to your show? Like, how did I find it and watch your show? How did I find this tribe of people who see the world how I do and connect and uh, Yeah, I wonder if they, they feel like they're a tribe. I definitely get a lot of emails from people who felt like they were alone or, or that they were inspired to get sober or, you know, it helps them with uh, their fear or their darkness or whatever. I, I, I don't always get the sense that they necessarily feel like there's there's a lot of them. Yeah. But uh, but but I think they do feel like well at least there's you yeah <laughs> I mean I would think or whoever that I'm talking to that's how I feel with Lenny I feel like we have these women who kind of didn't have a place to see themselves reflected back and right. also we're trying really really hard both on the podcast and on Lenny to reflect clearly that like there's no one kind of woman there's no one kind of feminist that like being female right now is extremely multifaceted and that like we want to create connections within that. Now, okay, so now this is the last of girls. Yeah, we The done. last 10, done. Yeah, we're done. Oh my God, what was it like after you shot the finals? You were such a special part of girls, by the way. You really like came and you really played a character. You really turned it out. Yeah, two eps. Of, two eps. I was a, a, a city councilman. You were great. And Thank I loved you. when you showed up at the party just to say like, fuck you. <laughs> That yeah. was one of my favorite things we've ever shot when he was like, it was very big of you to show up. But when Ray says, like, it was very big of you to show up at my party. And you're like, fuck you. And did you say yeah, you were I'm moving gonna to Katona? Yeah, you're going to move to Katona. Connecticut. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. think it was Katona, but yeah, I can't be 100% yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. And I did my fake comb over. Your comb over. Was that your idea, the comb over? Yeah. I wanted to look different, but I didn't want to shave it all off. That was so good. Yeah, you looked very like like nasty insurance salesman. Yeah, good. I'm glad I pulled it off. I was a, I was a honored to do it. It was fun. It was an honor to have you. I remember we were like... I think oh. it was really the first time I tried to do something that wasn't me. You were amazing. And I remember we were sitting around trying to figure out who to cast, and Jenny was like, do you think Mark Maron would ever do this? And I was like, it's worth a shot. <laughs> And then there you were on a plane. <laughs> Coming to do it. And it's a real honor. I think about everyone who was on Girls and I kind of like look at the yearbook of it in my brain oh my and I God. can't believe how many special people came through. It's crazy. And you're one of that. Like I can't believe so many people like came to play. It oh, was yeah. Actors yeah. like to work and people, you know, like to be funny and yeah, yeah, a lot of great people on there. Got really well, lucky. What was the last like what was that last day? Was there a lot of crying and so just... much crying. So much crying and just like feeling like it was interesting. My grandma died this summer right in the middle of shooting, and I took a couple days off to be with my family mm -hmm. next to her while she was dying, which was – I wasn't in the room when she died, but I was sort of there for all the lead up. We were then told by the hospice worker that we were all being too noisy and aggressive and we needed to leave her alone because we were, like, basically being, like, too noisy for her to die. <laughs> You let her die in peace. Well, it's six Jewish women. What do you expect? So we're all in there like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm like braiding my cousin's hair and like shrieking about something with my boyfriend. And like literally the hospice worker was like, how can you expect her to die under these circumstances? <laughs> so we went out and hung out in the hall. And but, she passed away? And she passed away. 96 years old. 96. Dorothy Simmons. Good work, young lady. Wow. Yeah. she that really good. She really did it. Almost 97. But she was born on leap year. So she always liked to say like, no, I'm 32 or whatever, like dividing it by three. Yeah. But she was real. She was a real flirt. Oh, good. At the first girls premiere, she walked onto the red carpet. And like she was like wearing like a little sequin dress. So mm -hmm. at this point, she must have been 90. And she walks right up to Judd. And yeah. she's like, I hear you from the island. 
And I was like, are you flirting with Judd Apatow? Grandma, uh, <laughs> I hear you from the yeah. island. And the last words she said to anybody were to me. Yeah. And it's because I told her a lie, which is I said that Jack had proposed to me, which he hadn't. I yeah. just have a diamond ring Jack got me. And yeah. I was like, Grandma, Jack and I are going to get married. Yeah. And she smiled. And I was like, look at the ring he got me. And she was like, I like it. And then she just like never said anything again. And my family still doesn't believe she said it to me. But I'm like, I didn't hallucinate it. Right. That's how you rouse a Jewish grandmother by showing them a, a large v- diamond a given jewelry. to you by a rich Jew. <laughs> That's how you do it. Yeah. So when you when you were doing the like considering how to to end this thing, I mean, the first three episodes are weird because, like Jenny said, it's sort of like Black Mirror. Like none of the first three episodes really have anything to do with what, each other. Well, why'd you do it that way? It just felt like we had stories to tell that weren't necessarily episodic, but that yeah. were like sort of these self-contained lessons for our characters. And if we weren't going to be experimental now, when we were going to, when were we going to do so it? So they were primarily because it wasn't necessarily like this is the last season. This is these are essential episodes. It's sort of like these are things that this is the last time we're going to get to do this. Yeah. If we want to explore this stuff. And it was like these are the themes that I think that we still haven't hit and that we feel together we still haven't hit. And like this is the way that we want to tell the story. And then we then it kind of gets a little more plotty in the middle. And then the last two episodes, we really tried to do something that Judge Jenny and I really tried to do something that was a little bit different than like a traditional season finale yeah and it it worked out i think so but you know you never people will tell you if they think it worked out or not it's a little bit experiment i mean not experimental like it's not like a maya darren film it's not like we like painted on like (laughs) no voodoo dancers no (laughs) but it's but it's just a different way of wrapping up a story and it just felt we'd known for a long time how we wanted to end the story but not sort of We'd known what we wanted to do thematically, but not how we wanted to approach it creatively. And it was really challenging and weird and sad. And now that we're finishing the press for girls is when the kind of like grief and identity loss and stuff is all really hitting me. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's like uh, it, it, it when you really think about how much of your life is taken up by a project like that for that long a time, it leaves a big hole. I mean, I started working on the pilot when I was 23. I was living with my parents. I was, my life was in completely different. I mean, to say my life was in a different place is an impossible understatement. And then my entire day, life, identity was completely wrapped up in this project. Like, and then now it's done. And I, there's a little part of me that feels like I sort of like trapped myself emotionally in amber. And now I'm having to face a lot of things that I don't care i said to jenny yesterday i was like i'm finding out a lot about myself and i don't like it well yeah i mean you had to sort of like grow up in public in a way sort of uh uh kind of like uh embracing it but also constantly defending it yeah and you know being controversial for that long for whatever reasons came at you but you did have to sort of do it all publicly so now like you know the idea of silence and being thoughtful and and working at a different pace uh, I guess you're going to figure out, you know, whether you really did grow up or not. I know because it's you, <laughs> it's shocking what happens when you're alone with your own brain. And I was never alone with my own brain right. for the entire time I was working on the show. I, I don't have great success with it. I'm much better if I'm talking to somebody it's else. It's tough. I love to be by myself. I love to read. Like I find the greatest luxury to just be like curled up reading and yeah. writing and thinking. But I was always doing it knowing that I was returning to this incredibly immersive work environment. And now like the next... 
I mean, I'm working on a book that comes out in January and that's and it's fiction. And that's a slow, super private process that gives you plenty of time to figure out what you haven't handled. And all the time that I wasn't working on girls, I was throwing myself into causes that were important to me, which, again, like I don't regret any of it, but I didn't. I, there's ways I grew a lot and there's ways I grew not at all. And now I'm finding out what those are and it's not um, ideal. Well, it's good that you're writing a book. I because mean, like, you know, you it's funny writing as much as I hate it. You know, when you get in it, you you, re, you know, things are revealed to you about you that you you didn't have a uh, in context or a sense of. Completely. And there's also something about writing fiction that allows you i mean once you're a public figure like there's you can't ever sort of publish something you can't write with abandon about yeah. your own life again that's why i like to stay a marginal public figure you know sort of slightly under the radar you're not marginal to me oh thank you it's always good seeing you really yes and uh i'm glad that you ended uh, the show and did the whole show on your terms and that you're happy with the way it went out that means a lot and i want you to know that Something that was very comforting to me throughout the show, just like all your listeners, was li- was hearing your interviews and hearing how many other creative people felt lonely, scared, tortured, frustrated. You brought that out in such a clear and profound way. And I actually think some of your interviews were probably the fuel that allowed me to make it through this entire experience. Oh, glad to help out. And I want everyone to know that his house looks just as shitty as it always has. <laughs> a little more. Fame has not changed, Mark Marin, because it smells weird in here and it, it looks does? even weirder. Your well, house smells like cats, dude. Okay. Well, you know, this has been good. <laughs> it's time for you to go to your next uh, junket stop. I'm not even going. I'm going to the gynecologist. Ooh. okay. Well, make sure you do that on the podcast. Okay, great. Thanks. I've already done it on my podcast. Oh, you went? Yes. I, I, list, I recorded myself getting a vaginal ultrasound and a morphine drip. Oh. So how did you ramble on the morphine drip? I was like... Guys, it feels like there's balloons in my head. Like, <laughs> I I was like, said to my dad, I was like, I'm really nervous. I really like morphine. And he was like, join the club, loser. <laughs> like, no one doesn't like morphine. <laughs> no one's like, it's not for me. Your dad with more practical advice. Yeah, love you, Mark. Love you, too. that was fun that was nice to see her that was good now this next dude that i talked to trey crowder i i seen him i heard about him i got his book in the mail then i saw him talk to bill maher for a second but i like the angle you know what i mean he's been doing comedy a little bit i think six or seven years but he's you know he he, he seems to to be an anomaly at least uh publicly uh, and, and, you know, he's, um, he's claiming it, you know, his book, he's the co-author of the liberal redneck manifesto dragging Dixie out of the dark. Uh, you can get that wherever you get books. He's on tour right now. Check out his tour dates at, uh, wellreadcomedy.com. That's well red R E D comedy.com. Uh, so this is me, uh, talking to, uh, Trey Crowder. How old are you? Thirty, about to be thirty-one. So you kind of grew up with the with the truckers, then, like you yeah. were part of your childhood. Yeah, uh, probably around like like high school, early high school age is when I first found out about them or started listening to them. And yeah. I remember, uh, I think, 
if I'm not mistaken, they were like they were the first band that I ever played for my dad that he like dug that like he actually a new like, band. Like yeah. there's some new guys. First, first band, yeah, of mine, you right, know, that I right. like brought to him and that he actually liked. Right. And so that's when I was like, Oh yeah, well these guys must be super legit then or whatever and right. I'd started diving further into it and I just I don't know, it really struck a chord to me because I was like, Oh man, you can be you can be like overtly southern and but not stare in the stereotypical ways. You know what I mean? You right. can be like progressive or intellectual or whatever too right. with what you're doing sure. while still being explicitly southern because there's not there really isn't a lot of that right, you right. know, in pop culture. And that was one of the first things that I saw, especially, you know, from the like new yeah. newer things yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. like that. And it just really resonated. Right. Like uh like uh cool culturally uh right. progressive southern stuff. Right. Exactly. Well there's definitely been some pretty big literature from the south without a doubt yeah <laughs> you know? but th- it seems like that never i don't know it's like that's kept completely separate sure, from the rest did, of it you know yeah, what i mean like yeah, it didn't ever- catch on with the working people right yeah you know? <laughs> yeah and as far as the <laughs> perception know? of the south it doesn't seem like that really seems to make a difference the fact that there's well i'm not that sure that it was but- necessarily the greatest uh view of them like some of the falconer stuff right. and uh flannery o'connor yeah yeah, yeah. that was a. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, for years I I um I was guilty of uh, stereotyping the South. I think it was just easy mm-hmm. to do because you know there were certainly people that fit into that stereotype, and it became sort of a for sure as a as much a uh, a kind of you know I don't know if it's racist, but it definitely became a, a negative characterization that was very easy to do like it was almost like as comics almost any stupid voice was a southern yeah uh, for sure always if you were gonna do (laughs) if a comedian was gonna do a bit about somebody being an idiot they would immediately launch into some version yeah 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 yeah. don't sound right to me (laughs) you know yeah yeah yeah. well it's just it still makes you laugh but um but then when i started traveling there uh you know outside of my own nervousness you know, I remember going there early on, and it was it was still kind of uh, well. I don't know if it was scary, but I made assumptions. You know, like right. back in the '90s, early '90s, I went down to Raleigh or somewhere, which isn't even you know the deep South, is it really? No. But um, <laughs> but you know, as I I traveled there to Tennessee and and uh, even you know parts of Florida, and I drove across country a couple of times. Like I've I've nothing but um, good stories and decent people that I've met there, and right. it's beautiful country. Mm-hmm. But but there still is the reality that um, as a voting block, right, uh, it still represents something. I mean that's definitely true. And the thing is, I've never, or at least I feel like I've never tried to like deny that or say that like that doesn't exist. Like, hey, the South isn't that. Right. That isn't real. Like that yeah. exists. Those people are real. They're out there. My whole thing has just always been. But they don't speak for us all. They don't represent the entire region as a whole or whatever. You know what I mean? Like sure, we're yeah. In, when I say we, I mean liberals, progressives, whatever, are in the minority down there without a doubt. But right. it's still that's still a sizable amount of people just in terms of, you know, even if it's, you know, 30 and it's higher in a lot of places, but 30 or 40 percent of the people there. I mean, you know, that's yeah. millions of Southerners. Sure. Who sure. aren't who aren't that. Right. But we are still the minority without a doubt. And well, so, I mean, so where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a tiny little town called Salina, Tennessee. Where's that near? So uh, Knoxville's on the east side of the state. Nashville's in the middle, almost directly between Knoxville and Nashville, and then 40 miles up 
on the Kentucky line, middle of no, we had no traffic lights in my hometown, no Walmarts, no McDonald's, nothing. I mean, it's rural. Really? Very, very. Like what, just a post office and a store? There was two grocery stores, post office, there was a dollar store, uh, three liquor stores when I was yeah. a kid, <laughs> you know, and but no, we had a Dairy Queen. How big is your family? Uh, well, it, so my mom's side of the family is actually pretty big because yeah. her mom, my mama cat, my grandma, yeah, uh, she had eight brothers and sisters. So there was a lot of them, but a lot of them left and went north before I was born, yeah. you know, for work or whatever. Yeah. So I would only see them for reunions and stuff. But then I kind of, I'm not, I'm only, I've only kept in touch really with a cup with a few of them, honestly. Uh, of your mother's, mother's, sister's my mom, kids? My mom's, second, just my mom's side of the family. Second cousins period. and whatnot, yeah. First and second. So my mom only had one sister, my aunt. Yeah. She passed away. She had two uh, sons, my first cousins. One of them passed away. Her husband passed away. So like. Well, how'd your cousin pass of, away? Uh, he OD'd. There's he a did? lot of, a lot of that in my family. Oh, really? Yeah, my uh, my mom, in fact, uh, is an addict. I mean, like in recovery now, but you know the deal. You know, she's always an addict or opiates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pill billies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they got caught up in it big time. And your cousin too. Yeah, he OD'd in 2015. Really recently. Yeah, on oxy or heroin. Uh, oxy's. Pills. Really. Yeah. And uh, so so in, in in terms of the extended family, you just don't keep in touch because. Of, of ideological reasons or just because they're out in the world and you know i mean i don't keep in touch with mine well, either honestly not i don't know how fair this is or not yeah. or whatever but uh so like i said my mom was an addict and she uh was kind of in and out of jail some yeah. too when i was growing up so like w- we have a relationship now it's okay whatever but like you know she wasn't around a whole lot for a long stretch when i was growing up yeah and my only connection to that side of my family was her mom my grandma and uh she passed away of just old age, bad health in yeah. uh, 2010. Yeah. And after that, I just kind of, and you you know, she with, was like the last link right, to that right. side of the family. You know what I mean? Sure. I don't really have anything against most of them, but I just don't, right. I don't really keep in contact with and, them. And, uh, but your mom's doing better? Yeah, she is. She's doing better. And the thing, like, you know, I came to realize as I got older, like she, as a lot of addicts do, she has genuine mental health problems. Right. And I mean, so she still deals with that. But in terms of like her addiction, I mean, yes, she's clean and has been clean, uh, you know, for a, a good little bit now, a few years. And so you never had any better. problems? Me? No, yeah. no, not with that. I, well, I haven't, I don't feel like I've, I mean, you know, uh, I like still to time, drink. Trey. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, don't count <laughs> it out. Uh, but no, no, I never really drifted into that because of. Yeah, the uh, morning all, the, side. all the shit that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, it could go either way. You know, I talk to people like that all the time. Like, either you're gonna you're gonna be that, or you're gonna never be that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, but I mean, again, you know, I, you know, I like to drink. I've been a sure. big drinker. Over so you grew years, up with your dad primarily. Then my dad uh, raised me. Uh, yeah. Me and my sister. I have one sibling, a younger sister. Yeah. And my dad pretty much raised us. Uh, and he passed away of pancreatic cancer in 2013. Oh my god! But he was uh, sorry, buddy. That's all right. Thank you. He was uh, he was an awesome dude. He loved us a whole lot, but he didn't really we he we didn't have much. You know what I mean? Like we were super poor. Like well, what, and, what was he do? What did he do? Well, when I was a kid, uh, he actually owned and operated a uh, video store. Remember those things? Those sure. Re- <laughs> relics of a bygone era. Not a he, chain store, but like a yeah, local Crowder's store. Video. Oh, he, he yeah. had his own business. Yeah, and uh, that did okay there for you know when I was younger. Yeah, just like but then in my in Salina, right? 
uh, for years and years, the center of the town's economy was this big uh, clothing factory. Yeah. Uh, Oshkosh Bagosh. Sure, the overalls. Right, over, they made overalls. Yeah. And in the 90s after NAFTA, that left, and uh, it utterly decimated the town's economy. Like, it's still to this day, it's in bad shape. And that had a ripple effect on my dad's business and everything. But honestly, it probably wouldn't have even mattered because he actually got uh, sick shortly after that. He uh, he got Hep C. He got hepatitis yeah. C, and that sort of knocked him out of. Because back then, I know I, I've heard like now was he a drug there's a treatment too? for it. I mean, I we didn't really talk about it, and I know when I was growing up. If he was, I know it wasn't a huge issue because he right. was always there and everything. Right. You know what right. I mean? And sure. he wasn't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But now back in the day, I mean, when him and my mom were younger, whatever, I mean, yeah, yeah he, he sure. was. And so, like I said, nowadays, apparently, hep C, there's, that's Yeah, not, you can do it. You right. can, it costs a bit, right. but you can knock it out. Even, but back then, you know, and this is like late 90s or whatever, like, he was on interferon, interferon oh, yeah, or whatever. Oh, yeah, level I mean, you, man. Uh, it, I mean, it, it fucked him up bad, yeah, you yeah. know? And so, he couldn't work, and that sort of knocked him out of that, but, by, and, but then, like I said- I mean, the business honestly was going down anyway, so it was about to get rough for us no matter what, basically. And you were how old? Uh, I mean, around eleven, yeah, something like that. So what in in the town? Like, so you were eleven or twelve when Oshkosh closed? No, I was about that was I was like nine, ten, something like that. And I'm saying people like held out, you know what I mean, for a couple years. You know what I'm saying, trying to make it work before it really like yeah. Did, so I'm saying the business was starting to decline anyway and then his health did too and then that was so it, that you know? that like really is sort of the the you know uh a fund like an example of exactly what leveled the whole area yes right that you know right. that a lot of these economic issues that are people are so angry about mm-hmm. now and yep. what was really i think made people vulnerable yep. to the to the opiate uh, yeah. epidemic and everything else so but how did you get out of there you went to high school there and everything yeah and did you play ball or anything I, I played football but i mean i wasn't much of a football player i mean i was okay but it was 1a ball and i was like a lineman right i'm six foot tall like yeah. i wasn't gonna go to college and play offensive line you know what i mean yeah uh so i mean i did but i always made i always made really good grades and yeah. so from very early on my dad and his dad my paternal grandfather they like it was always, you know, you're going to go to college and you're going to, you know. Oh, yeah? You're going to be a lawyer, a doctor, or something big like that. But, yeah. like, even back then, I would be like, well, I think I'd rather be a comedian, you know, or whatever. Really? And, like, yeah. And my, so, like, my grandpa and a lot of, like, teachers and people like that, when they heard that, they'd be like, what? No, no. Yeah. Go to medical school. You know, right, what the hell's right. wrong with you? Yeah. But my dad, he was always like, hell yeah, I think that'd be cool as shit, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, that's just how he was. So, uh, but I still went to college just my thinking was, if I go to college, uh, I don't want to do the whole starving artist thing. I don't want to wait tables and stuff like that because I've been, you know, I've had enough of being broke as hell. Yeah. So I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get a like a, a degree that lets me just get any kind of job where I can actually make money while I try to be a writer or a comedian or whatever. That's yeah. What, that's what I was thinking. So now, that's what I did. When you were a kid, though, like, like as you got into high school... You know, in this area, because I mean, the book you wrote, the liberal redneck manifesto. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you are an a, you know an agenda driven driven comedian, and it's a good angle at this point. You've been doing comedy a little while, but I mean, what started to you know sort of inform that? I mean, were you like like when you were in high school after the factory closed? Could you see you know your classmates and everybody drifting? 
you know, into to something that was different than you remember when you were a kid? I mean, I definitely was aware of like, I got to get the hell out of here. You yeah, know what I mean? Because right. if I don't, it's not going to be good because I see plenty of people that don't. And I knew that that was important. A lot of that stuff, though, I didn't. I didn't really gain a, a good perspective on. I don't the think the economic realities, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Until later, because the thing is, because of the way that it was there, whatever. Everybody, most everybody, was in the same boat in large part, and right. so like my frame of reference was just so fucked up in that way. Like, right. When you say the economic realities coming from a poverty stricken area. There was just a lot of shit I didn't understand until later, and like looking back on it, like, oh damn, uh, that was poverty you know what i mean like sure. abject poverty and at the time it's just me and all my buddies were like that right you know and what, what I mean? did was there a point where you know something changed your heart or changed your mind were you surrounded by by uh uh you know uh hopelessness what was the the social tone when you were in high school i mean uh i actually i tell people often and again this was something that i didn't realize until looking back i used to be even more defensive about the south back you know when i was younger i'd be like it's not that bad it's not like that or whatever but I come to find out later, it was just that my hometown, oddly enough, just wasn't as bad in those like stereotypical hateful ways or whatever. And yeah. what I've chalked that up to is we actually there's actually a black community there. Yeah. And like in a lot of towns of that size, like very rural parts of the South, uh, they don't really have that a lot right. of times. And so that's where you get like my wife's hometown. There no black people at all. Yeah. And so I think that made a big difference as far as that thing that as far as all that went. Because I didn't really see I heard stories of people in neighboring towns like putting a noose in like a black kid's lo- like the only black kid's locker or right. something like that, and I was always like, Fuck, "Really? Like I could never imagine that happening uh, when I was growing up." Because right. I mean, shit, dude, my my buddies, black guys I grew up with, they whip your ass, you right. pull some shit like that. You but know what I there mean? There was, so, but there, but also it was a well, little is integrated, and there was a black community, and yeah. you know that gave you a different perspective. But you didn't feel a lot of hate or a lot of tension in your world. No, I dealt. I had to. I would get very defensive about my uncle, uh, my dad's brother. He's yeah. gay, and I yeah. and I knew that. And, Did he uh, live down there? No, not at the time. He does now because of my grandma, his mom. Yeah, she's. I mean, her husband, my grandpa died. Her other son, my dad died. So my uncle was sticking around there, like taking care of her, basically. But he got out. He. Well, I mean, he went to Nashville. He lived right. in Nashville for most of his adult life. Oh yeah. Yeah, but I, but people like knew that he was gay or whatever. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. I would just. I didn't get like physically picked on. I was always kind of a bigger kid. Yeah. But like people just make cracks and shit all the time about him being, you know, a fag or whatever. Just really. That, that kind of. I mean, yeah, that kind of shit. And so that I've always been very defensive and very passionate about like you know gay rights and things like sure, that sure. from a very early and that's also why i quit fucking with jesus <laughs> at the really? age that I t- yeah were you brought up pretty heavy not 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 compared to most people there my mom's side of the family and i already explained some of that you know they a lot of them went to church and whatnot and so me and my sister would just go too just because that's just what you do yeah but then <laughs> jesus is part of it yeah but then when i found out that my uncle was gay when i mean i was like nine that's also when i found out what gay even was right when I found out my uncle was gay, I started noticing shit that otherwise had been flying over my head about, you know, them being abominations and that kind of shit. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the sort of rhetoric that Southern Baptists are known for yeah. in regards to you right. know, um, homosexuals. And I started, I was like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. What the fuck? Who, you know, you don't even know my uncle, man, like that right. kind of attitude. Sure, sure. And so I was like, well, f- 
I, fuck that. You know what I mean? And, yeah. I, and I, when I told my dad, I was like, I don't think I want to go anymore. He was just like, well, right, hell yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> Turn the skinner back up. You know what I mean? Like, because he didn't go either, probably because his brother was gay, I guess. But so that, you know, I left pretty early, which I think also. Had and a what was your do. grandmother's tolerance of it all? My uncle's mom, yeah. his mom, uh, she she was great. Yeah. And, and still is. Yeah. Uh, she was always, you know, it's that a mother's love thing. You sure. know what I mean? She loves the shit out of him. And like they, uh, him and his uh, partner, uh, Uncle Mike, for yeah. years and years, they always, I saw them together all the time. Like they always were there at Christmas and Thanksgiving and whatever else. And like my grand, the deal with my grandpa was like, you know, we just didn't really talk about it. But yeah. like, I mean, he knew what was going on and sure. they were still welcome there and he yeah, still yeah. hugged his son and all that stuff. Tolerance. Yeah. Tolerance. Yeah, exactly. And all right. So you, you get out. Where do you mm-hmm. go to college? Tennessee Tech University. Where's that at? It's in Cookville, the place I was telling you about earlier. So not that far away. Yeah. Actually, I'm, I went to UT, the University of Tennessee at first and yeah. like right literally right as i was in the process of moving down there my grandpa my dad's dad i was just talking about he passed away massive heart attack and that was that hit me real hard because he was like the sort of the authoritarian figure in my life yeah and so i came back home with the intent of just starting a semester late just going to ut in the spring yeah my guidance counselor talked me into going to tech instead because she was afraid that like so many other kids from there i just would never go back right she was like so you can go here you'll be close to home and then you can transfer to ut later and so that was the plan but i ended up liking it there so i just stayed in cookville yeah yeah and what'd you get the degree in uh i i they have a thing called the plus one program where you can major in whatever and take business courses and then get an MBA if you go to business school after that. Oh, so yeah. that's what I did. So I got an MBA. My undergrad is in uh, psychology. Really? Yeah. Just because I was interested in it. I knew I was doing the MBA thing. Yeah. And I know you can't do shit with a bachelor's in psychology. You know, I'm, right. I'm aware of that. But right. It didn't matter. The MBA was what mattered. And so I was just interested in psych, so that's what I did. Yeah, what did you did you learn anything from psych? I mean, I've forgotten it all. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I feel like I was I knew shit about it at the time, but I've you know it's mostly gone now. So the and so then you went to graduate school or yeah. you went to business school? Yeah. Well, it was uh, four semesters. Oh yeah. That I did all like back to back to back. So it's and, like, and then and then what were you set up to do? Uh, so that was the high that was 2009 like the height of the recession i was working at a bar for like five months afterwards and i was like jesus what did i do i fucked up you know but then i i just the first job i was able to find was with the u.s department of energy in oak ridge tennessee you are you familiar with oak ridge the manhattan project oh yeah the manhattan project was split between oak ridge tennessee and los alamos new New mexico Mexico. that's where i grew up and uh and so Oak Ridge is where they enriched the plutonium that was then shipped to New Mexico and put into the bombs or whatever. Yeah. Well, that was the precursor to the DOE, and they just never left. They're still there. They still have a uh, the lab, the ORNL, Oak Ridge National Laboratory, Y twelve Nuclear Weapons Complex. There's so, a there's a particle accelerator there. A bunch of wild shit. High security situation. Very much so. Still yeah. in use. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're building a big multi billion dollar brand new nuclear facility out there right now. For energy or for defense? Defense. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And what? So, what was your job there? I was a contracting officer. So, you know, the federal government—they don't really do anything. They just contract it out to private industry. I handled the. I negotiated and awarded and like administered federal contracts. 
to uh, subcontracting companies that do the stuff. Yeah, I was like lower level, so like I was mostly like uh, you know contractors that like mow the grass or you know right. mop the floors Bring or the whatever. Food in. Yeah, yeah, that that kind of thing. That's what I did. No, no national security clearance. No, I mean, well, I had a I had a, a Q clearance, which is like a top secret equivalent or whatever, because I just I had to. I mean, I never. I did see some shit that I think technically was like nuclear secrets, but yeah. I, didn't, I didn't understand. It was all in like, I'd have to be a nuclear engineer to even know what the fuck they were talking oh, about. Like you're walking into a room seeing a chalkboard or something? Right. That kind of stuff. Or <laughs> they talk about it in the meeting. Yeah. I'm in there for business reasons, but right. all that stuff, it, it was like classified or whatever, but I, I mean, it, you couldn't get it out of me even if you tried because I don't know what the fuck it meant anyway. Right. You know? So what were, what, were, what were you experiencing in terms of... Uh, you know the realities of, of government, or how did that shift your brain at all? Did you did you feel like you were doing working for something bad? No, no, not really. Because I mean, as far as so DOE is split into DOE, and then under that is the NNSA, National yeah. Nuclear Security Administration. That's all the nukes shit. I was with DOE, so it was all like I was I was paid by the Office of Science. So right. technically, I was working to support the doe's science missions and stuff so i felt philosophically or whatever i felt okay about it you know what i mean right i did and then that's another thing with all this shit with me allowing me to quit that job and everything that i've done one of the main things i'm most grateful for now in retrospect is that i'll never have to work for fucking rick perry who's now the secretary of energy (laughs) yeah when i was there it was a nobel laureate and after that the head of physics and energy at mit right and now it's rick perry so uh, yeah, yeah. Glad I, to not be there anymore. Well, did you feel that we were surrounded by like what smart people or that you know that yeah everybody, a lot of a lot of smart people yeah people lot, trusted the leadership. Yeah, I mean, yes, I did. I right. did feel like that. But also, a lot of these people are like lifers. Like a lot of feds, they tend to not leave because I mean it's a pretty good gig as far as that shit goes. Yeah, you know? and so they you adopt this philosophy over time that it's like it. You know they do the work regardless of who the main, the top guy is. Most of them, seemingly, yeah, right. So they'll keep doing the same shit with Perry there too, right? I right. assume. And well, you got health coverage and everything. Yeah, all that. So why'd you quit? Because uh, I made some videos that went viral, and comedy became an actual viable option. Were for you me. doing stand up when you were there? Yeah, I started. I started at Side Splitters in Knoxville. Was my home club. Were you doing the kind of jokes you were doing now then? Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of done. Uh, you know, tried to be non-stereotypically Southern humor. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, whole, the the videos and stuff, the whole liberal redneck thing. It, not everything I do is overtly political, but right. like it's always been in that vein of I'm not what you think I am based off how I look and how I sound or whatever. Right. You know what I mean? I don't say the things you expect me to say. Did you feel like there was pushback on that from the club or yeah. just from crowds? The club. Or whatever. Uh, I mean. Yeah, depending on what it was about, because some of their their rules, like it had to be church clean, they called it. I couldn't yeah. say damn it or hell or nothing. And so any kind of remotely risque topics, you know, they'd be like, you don't do that. The hosts don't do that. Really? Don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I would, I was still, even that was my home club. I was going down to Chattanooga or going to Nashville or doing alt shows, just whatever, like super early on. And then I started, you know, hitting the road a little more. How many years in are you when you do these videos? Five and a half, five and a half years. So, and that was a couple of years ago. And that was a year ago. A year ago. Mm-hmm. So, what what prompted you to do them? Well, so like I said, I was doing the same kind of thing on stage sure. for a while, and I had this bit that I thought was like my signature bit. I closed with it a lot or whatever. Yeah. 
and it was very similar to the videos. The bit was basically me, you know, yelling a bunch of liberal shit in an extremely redneck fashion after setting it up. Right. And I never said the words liberal redneck, but right. if I made a set list or whatever, that bit was entitled liberal redneck. Right. 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 And my close buddies that were comics, I started telling them about two years ago, I was like, I think I want to do a video series about this. And then I went to, uh, I did this writer's workshop that NBC does. I got into that and went to 30 Rock or whatever in 2015. You did? You and went that, up to New York? Yeah. that NBC does this late night writer's workshop program yeah. that you can like submit to or whatever. And I got into it in 2015 and went up there and introduce whatever the liberal redneck character to them up there as part of that workshop and they like you know they loved it they were like you need to do something with that right so how long is that workshop uh it's just a week you go up there for a week is it like a week connected to snl or something they'll bring in like snl writers or seth myers writers or jimmy fallon writers stuff like that uh-huh. it's like you know i mean so yes did you learn anything uh, yeah i think so as far as that kind of writing specific i mean it was an awesome experience i, I yeah i loved it especially the, at the time it was great the first know? time in new york yeah, that was my first time in New York, period. Did they put you up? Uh, no, I slept in my buddy's basement in Queens on, uh, a, on comedian? a mattress pad. Yeah, one of the guys on tour with me, Drew Morgan's his name. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But so, yeah, they loved the character, and everybody, them and my friends were like, you should do something with it. And, but I, in my head, I was like, Man, I'll have to I'll have to save up money and buy a camera. I'll have to learn how to edit. I don't want to look like an amateur. Hell, you know, like that's what I was right, thinking. Right. And then early last year, I saw this video that went viral among the far right. So like people I know from Salina or whatever were posting it, sharing it, and it was a preacher in North Carolina, but a pre- about my age, like you know, people you knew from home were posting it. Yeah, uh-huh. and like so, it's a guy early thirties preacher in North Carolina standing in the woods by a big jacked up truck just yelling in his iphone about the transgender bathroom laws and mm-hmm. perverts in the bathrooms and jesus right. will strike them down and all that stuff and it had 15 million views and i had it's like a light bulb went off i was like if that's what i'm trying to satirize or make fun of and it is i don't need any of that fancy shit i can just do it exactly the way he does it and hell it might even play better that way right and so i just went out a few days later and made the first one and it got like 70,000 views on Facebook, and I was over the moon. I was thrilled. Yeah. And I told my buddies, I was like, look, hey, people like it. I'm going to keep this up. And then the second one I made was about the HB2 laws, and it ended up getting like over 25 million views or whatever. And that's when my entire life changed was after that. Yeah? Yeah. What yeah. happened? Well, I got all these like followers on social media overnight. I put on there that i was like yes i'm a comedian this is supposed to be funny having said that like i i really do believe these things i really am from that kind of background or whatever what was the what was the uh, the thrust of it that one it was about uh those transgender bathroom laws and was, i basically was just saying like you know you know transgender people have been around forever right and how many times have you ever heard about what you're worried about happening actually happening you know and also what about little boys you know the vast majority of like uh kids that are molested or whatever are little boys and so unless you want to start making separate bathrooms for catholic priests you need to shut the fuck up right right yeah that kind of thing yeah and uh and that was, you know, and it just, it, like I said, it just so, blew up. So it blew up, yeah. changed your life, but now you're politicized. R- yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. So now, like, you know, having spent time in that arena, mm-hmm. you know, that means, you know, right out of the gate, uh, you're dealing with contention, a divided yep. audience, mm-hmm. that you're drawing a line. Yep. And uh, you're one of their own. Yeah. 
So I imagine the Northerners, the Yankees, yeah. are sort of like, we got something here. Let's parade him around. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know. And and then like uh and then they're like, "Thank you. Good luck with everything." Right. Well, you know, I, you know, hell, we'll we'll see how it goes, but like What well, what what opportunities happen right away? Right away, people yeah. online started when I said I was a comedian, they were like, "Are you coming to Fort Lauderdale? Are you right, coming right. to Philadelphia?" You know, whatever. You had nothing on the books. And I was right? like, and I had I had actually for about 6 months I had a manager out here because yeah. i had come out here a few times i came out here did a show in santa monica at Westside comedy theater sure. and a manager saw me and so i had she was my representation at the time and so I, we started talking like you think we could tour i could actually tour off this shit and i mean i was sweating it man because there's a huge difference between clicking like on facebook and like paying money and leaving your house and going to a show or whatever how much time did you have as a comic uh at that time like five and a half years. Well, yeah. I mean, how much? Oh, time? I'm sorry. How much time did I have that I could do? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could at the like stuff I thought was great about thirty. Right. You know, uh, stuff so, I would be willing to do forty five or an hour, but it's like strong features. Strong. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, and so I we put this to a practice a trial run of a tour a week long trial run with me and the two guys I co wrote the book with who are also progressive Southern comics so it's right. like thematic you know yeah. And we did that, and the first night was at the Punchline in Atlanta, and it was on a Sunday night, and we sold out two shows, and George Wallace came and, like, watched the show and went on stage with us and whatever else, and, like, that that was, the, and this was about a month after the video had first been posted, and that was the first time where I was like, oh, shit, this is a real thing, maybe, yeah. you know? And right. then I got the book deal and a development deal with Warner Brothers, developing a sitcom right now yeah. in the process of that. And and then just toured heavily last year. Those are the major things that have come of it so far. So and I was on Bill Maher. Yeah, I saw I, you on there. I've done you know a lot of media things like that or whatever. So, but when you are in the position you're in, um, and and you know the, what what is the in the book? You know, it's a joke book, but it's also like something that that you know m- makes us me and people you, you know who 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 maybe stereotype Southerners see Southerners differently, but, but you're also put in a position to, um, to sort of represent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, progressive ideas. Yeah. And, uh, and that, and, and what, what in the book is practical information? I mean, what was the, what was the sort of agenda of the book other than it being a joke book? Well, we tried to, in addition to, like you said, ex- trying to explain what the South really is or, re- or is not to people who don't really know or understand the South. Yeah. We also tried to, like, tell how we think the South can do better about things. Like, for example, like in the chapter on racism, it's like, let's fucking get rid of all these monuments to Confederate generals. Let's stop fucking flying the flag and get over the goddamn Civil War. You know what right. I mean? Let's leave that shit in the past. Yeah. That kind of thing. Right. I mean, but, you know, Grant, I mean, in reality, the people who we are addressing that to, a lot, I mean, a lot of them are not even going to read the book in the first place. You right. know what I mean? Like those shitty people, shitty Southerners. Right. Know. And now they're now they're empowered. Now it seems that they've won. Yeah, recently the the possibility of the country being, you know, if not temporarily, maybe permanently divided along those lines seems like a real possibility. Yeah, for sure. So when you were when you were touring, like, how much pushback did you get 
from the, did did the South disown you? Did was there was there? No. Well, I mean, okay, this is separate from the tour, but like my hometown, Salina, for yeah. example. You know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of people praying for me. You know what I mean? Back home, uh, but they're sure. not lashing out at you. I mean, a couple have here and there, like on facebook or whatever right. no not in per- i've went home a couple times see my grandma or whatever and nobody's tried to give me what fur at the right aid or nothing yeah, yeah. you know but like um uh, as far as t- the tour though like the shows our best shows have been in the south and I, because the people that are coming they know what they're signing up for they're familiar with me or my videos or whatever so they know what they're getting into yeah and they get it on like every level you know what right. i mean because it's like not just oh we're liberals and we like the message behind this but also we're southerners and we're right. liberals so we appreciate that message too or whatever so our best shows have been in the south we haven't had a single sure because you found an audience they're relieved right. right yeah oh yeah they got a show they can go to and be who they are so many people have said to us after shows you know something along the lines of finally you know what i mean finally there's something like that you know that represents who i am you right. know what i mean and right because i'm not you know i'm not the stereotypical southerner either and there's you know this hasn't well been a thing before well okay so given that they like you know now you found this audience of, of like-minded people and obviously they were there like you said they've they've always been there mm-hmm. what you know how any and i know you're just a comic but <laughs> but right. you know it comes down to you know what do we do with those you know the people that you know, can't see past their their hatred or their religious beliefs. I mean, you know how like how do you deal with them in in your life? Have you had to in in your family or or you know just in general coming from where you're coming from? Do you have to sit down and have conversations with them? Yeah, for sure. I, not in my family as much anymore because all the reasons right. I told you earlier. Yeah, the, the people I keep in touch with are very small and they're mostly on my on the same sure, you know sure. wavelength as yeah. me. But yeah, growing up and over the years, I mean, yes, all the time. And I've my approach to that has always been like, I don't back off of what my opinion is or whatever else. You know what I mean? I yeah. don't. But I also, uh, you know, I don't shut down either. Like I'll talk with them about it as long as they want to. You know, and right. I, and I try to just be honest about it or whatever. And I don't flip out and be like, you know what, you're a fucking piece of shit, man, or whatever. Yeah. You know, I just try to talk to them about it. And yeah. some of them, they'll, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, hell, whatever. You know what yeah. I mean? Like eventually yeah. and then just shut down or, you know, I've I've never had anybody get like tried to get physical with me over my political beliefs so far, honestly. Well, they what is, usually what, just, ah, oh, fuck him. And, you know, whatever. what do you find are the biggest, you know, you know, um, touch points of resistance? I mean, obviously, you know, I assume that that, you know, before whatever's happening now is happening that you know if someone was racist they weren't necessarily a proud racist no yeah right and and uh so that you know that i imagine that wasn't part of the discussion but outside of social issues you know what what do you find the the issues that people have are that are that are kind of um unchangeable you know in terms of what are they defending well, there and I, okay. Right now, I'm talking specifically about my hometown, but there's a lot of my hometowns out there, and like, yeah. like I said, their quality of life has just went off a cliff in the past, you know, twenty years or right. whatever. And they just so like you said earlier, you said they're vulnerable. I mean, they're desperate. Like they just want things to get better, and they think that you know. So when they hear, oh, we're going to bring your jobs back and whatever else, you know, oh, hell yeah, sounds good to me. You know what I mean? They just want. 
They just want their lives to not be right. as shitty it's, as it's, they've right. become. It's and, not an ideological thing. It's just you know, it's just sort of like hopelessness and yeah. and and anger. Yes, yeah. because just it's like, out, of, out of their control, and all of a sudden, it's all gone. Yeah, exactly. And they and they think. You know, liberal liberal America or whatever just don't just doesn't give a fuck about them at all. You know what I mean? Like that's the perception that they have, and so it. And they also think that liberal America thinks that you know they're all stupid, they're all racist, you know, whatever else, and right. so that causes them to just you know lash out again. You know what I mean? They ain't voting liberal or whatever because fuck them big city liberals think they're better than me. That whole kind of attitude is yeah, I think definitely real. Well, yeah, the. Right. The 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 using the word liberal as some sort of derogatory thing without right. really connecting anything to it. Right. Libtards. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I've heard that and I and I see that around. I think that's a that's an old Rush Limbaugh. That's an old one. Right. Right? Libtards. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that when I really think about it, that you know, had things like they gotta blame somebody. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And you know, they can blame the government. Mm-hmm. And then when someone speaks to that, like, yeah, the government's awful, and then gets into office, and then just does the same fucking thing. Mm-hmm. You know, just new guys, mm-hmm. different government, usually worse. What I, what I don't always understand is how they can keep, you know, just shifting the blame to whatever makes their anger feel better when the blame, you know, lies on in, in policy. It's bizarre to me because, you know, liberal ideas, I, you know, what what would you say are the liberal ideas that you're presenting you know, as uh, you know, when you have conversations with these people, or as a southerner, what are the ones that 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 you think are like the misunderstanding lies in? Well, okay, it's weird to me that like the problem with like welfare and food stamps and stuff like that, when so many of these people are also poor or whatever, but like you know, and some on uh, welfare, and, right? Exactly. But well, I need my food stamps. You right. know what I mean? That kind of, but these motherfuckers, they're lazy, right? You know what I mean? Like there's a that, hypocrisy to it for sure, and and a lot of them too though are like. And I'm not saying my my in-laws are like that, but what they are is they're in that income class where they don't they're not getting food stamps and all that kind of shit. But like they're not doing great. either. Right. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of people that are like that and they blame people on food stamps and whatever else for being lazy and just abusing the system and wasting all their money and all this kind of shit. And that always really and, bothered and them, me. And they're paying for that. Yes, they, exactly. They think they're paying. And for like that. I grew, you know, I mean, I grew up on food stamps. You know what I mean? So I've always I've always been very, I guess, defensive about that, but also like it just doesn't track for me because again you know like really those are the bad those are the bad guys right you know what i mean not the motherfuckers who you know are wasting so much of our money on all this other shit and they well and they think like with trump they think they are voting in their own self-interest right now you know what i mean or well in november you know what i mean because hell he's gonna bring my job back he's gonna you know that that does represent their interest sure to them you know that makes yeah and it's like even if liberal ideals economic ones were in their self-interest from before well they didn't i mean clearly they didn't feel that way so you know i would argue that you know that's still some kind of failure because we didn't convince them or whatever you know what i mean like the the, uh, affordable care act business mm -hmm. like i have to assume a lot of people that are in dire straits are on that Mm -hmm. and i you know and i and i imagine they they uh, some of them voted for trump yeah (laughs) 
there's a thing it's went it's been on going around the internet some somebody's been accumulating different social media posts from just regular people that say something about like uh finally get rid of that sorry ass obamacare you know my aca coverage is so much better <laughs> thank god i've got aca oh, well that's just not a, a, you know what i mean and i mean yeah that, lack of but being properly informed i mean right. that seems to be the the real hinge to everything I right now i completely agree and everybody's the, in there everybody just gets their sources from or their news and information from the sources they picked out already right but so many and, people like even myself i mean you know like you we all do that right yeah you know, on one side or the other, because, you, you know, to take the time to actually source information properly mm-hmm. is a whole other leap. Yeah, you know, and, I if mean, you're that's just, true. and if you're just in a loop of Facebook posts of people that uh, they've already, you know, uh, targeted you. Yeah. As somebody that gets off on the whatever the ideology of those posts are, and it comes to you, you're like, well, this is the news here. The, there's still plenty of people that think like, well, it's on the Internet. You can just Google it. And that's enough. Right. To substantiate something. Right. Yeah. But in, in times of desperation and hopelessness, you know, any information that's going to, to sort of like, you know, kind of like liven your anger or, or justify your 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 point of view, you know, when you're in you know, when you're in pain or or, or in dire straits, you're you're gonna gravitate towards that because at mm-hmm. least that feels good. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I've honestly, and I mean, I'm very guilty of that, too, when it comes to just, you know, reading something. And if it's, you know, fits my narrative or whatever, as long right. as it's not from some, you know, bumfuck.com or whatever, I'll probably go with it. You sure. Know, like you said, we all do that to an extent. I know. But, I've had to become very aware of it. Like, you know, I'm saying something like, what do I really know about this other than right. I read a headline? Right. I heard that, you know. But I've I've tried. I've made like a concerted effort over the years to not like... Like, a lot of people I know, when people say some shit on Facebook that they don't agree with politically or whatever, they'll either block or remove them. Like, that kind of curating your own bubble in that way. Like, I've tried hard over the years to not do that, to, like, keep keep those people around or in touch with what's going on with them or whatever because i mean a lot of them are people i grew up with hell a lot of them are like you know they're friends of mine and that's another thing too like i know so many people that that voted for trump or that other people in other parts of the country would be like oh god you're what's wrong with america and i'm like no man he's a good dude he's a good guy we, i love that guy sure i have you know? I, we have i know keep people in our business and we have you know, maybe some common friends that that did that and you know and i talk about that a little in my act just sort of like trying to understand yeah it's sort of there's there's it's it's complex mm-hmm. in the sense that you know outside of their hatred for hillary which was you know probably maybe some of it is is based in 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 real policy but a lot of it was just demonization but also republicans are republicans a lot of them and a lot of people don't give a fuck after the de- you know once all right we won get over it right. like yeah. it's done that the nuances yeah. of 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 government they're, they're just not they don't know right and on both sides yeah they're just sort of like you know like, it's not part of their everyday life they're just like and now we <laughs> you know, the, the fact that we have a president where he's not just going to go do his job He's going to tweet all day long. Like usually he's just sort of like, <laughs> yeah. all right, well, I, I, I don't like it and vote for you, but go do whatever you're going to do. But now every day we got to deal with like, what? What happened? Yeah. What did he say? I know. And I, I, I mentioned this on when I was on real time and Bill was kind of like, uh, really? You really think so? But like think another, what? another thing that's crazy about the whole Trump thing to me is like, I, I know because I know these people. If you would have polled. I mean, what became his base, rural, working class, white Americans, whatever, if you would have polled most of those especially the men 
five, however many years, before he started calling Obama out, you know yeah, what I mean, yeah, for yeah. being Kenyan or what yeah. the fuck ever. Before that, if you'd have polled them, what do you think about Donald Trump? I guarantee you it would have been almost across the board negative. Yeah. He's a fucking... You billionaire. Know, billionaire, silver spoon up his ass, know it all Yankee who thinks he's better than everybody and you know, whatever else. Like he that is not their kind of guy. Like he's really not just as a person or as a you know, whatever, a personality. And that's what was blowing my mind about it the whole time. So I was looking around again at friends of mine or whatever, it's like, fucking really? That, that guy? Yeah. And I think it just shows how how desperate they had become for Somebody well, for even, a champion even, or whatever right. that even Donald Trump was good enough for them in that regard. Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, even W was a silver spoon, but like yeah. he seemed to be some sort of renegade, uh, you know, doofus. Right. That, yeah. yeah. That he was folksy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but he was like you know he was the oddball of that family, and right. that you know he was the uh, the one that could never get his shit together. Right. And actually, yeah. grew up Texan in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't. So what? What, well, I mean, you're just a comic, but um, yeah. yeah but I you know, mind, I have to. I say that a lot. I feel like you know, it's like there's people like. Well, we're desperate too. I mean, right. that's the thing is, like you know, I don't think that whoever they're calling liberals or Democrats or whatever, that you know they, you know, we don't understand some things, but I don't think it's fundamentally not understanding the life that they're leading but you know we don't understand you know intolerance or or right. a fear of diversity right. or uh you, you know or, or a fear of education like there mm-hmm. there are things that are practical that are going to get lost in this dialogue and i mean and we on some level you know, have to be more aware of that and we can't you know just you know st- you know draw the line i i don't know how we start to bridge the gap yeah well I've, i mean you're right, you know, as far as the intolerance and all that. Yes, fuck all that. There's no concessions to be made on, on those fronts. Right. I completely agree. But what I've told people when we've had conversations about, you know, my people, whatever, rural Americans is like, especially in my hometown in a place like that, to me, it's it's kind of ridiculous to actually think or believe that a lot of those people who are so motivated by how shitty their lives are and getting their job back and their way of life back or whatever else, yeah. that they care more about, uh, you know, Muslims or terrorists or whatever right. else. Now, don't, now, that shit don't hurt. I'm not saying... I mean, either way, they go along with it, right. which is still shitty as hell, right. without a doubt. Right. But, like, to... A lot of people seem to believe that, like, oh, no, that's the thing. That's what motive. That's what they love about Trump is all that stuff. That's why they're on board. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I don't think that's true. I think it was the other shit that he sold them economically or whatever. And they were like, look, if you can do that, fu- you know, whatever, fine, fuck it. Like, And also the other, the idea that there is this mythological America that's been lost right yes exactly and you know maybe you know generations ago obviously things were different and people could earn an honest living you know that was lost but there has been you know a lot of progress made you know culturally and uh and politically that is now going to be lost in the name of getting back to this idea of what america was yeah no i don't know if he's going to bring back the manufacturing base whatever i mean i would be stunned if any of that happens not regardless of policy or whatever just you know automation you know what i mean robots and shit like a lot of those jobs they're not they're not coming back and like i think there's a huge reckoning that we're all going to have to have especially these people when it really reaches that tipping point where you know they just aren't 
those jobs. You know, because you mentioned earlier, they're proud to not be on welfare or food stamp. They're very proud of that. Right. They don't, the fucking, they don't need nobody's help. Right. It's going to reach a point where, you know, the actual feasible route might be, you know, universal basic income or something like that because we just don't have jobs. And I know how that shit is going to play right. <laughs> with these people. And I don't I don't know what the fuck's going to happen when all when we finally do reach that point. My fear is that the fuck it vote. Right. <laughs> is really existentially like, you know, let's end the whole thing. Right, yeah. I think some of them, some people basically just fucking say that. You know what I mean? Just like, yeah, fuck it. We, blow you know, it all blow up. It up. Blow it all up. Start all over. Yeah, exactly. I definitely think there's an element of that out there. And yeah, that scares the fuck out of me. Well, yeah, because that's like a complete existential crisis. That was right. like the same, the same sort of like hopelessness and dark desperation that leads to you know, a, 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 a devastating opium epidemic is is nihilistic in nature. That yep. the the idea of, of getting into a relationship with that drug, not being able to get out of it, but but that sense of sort of like you know, fuck it, mm-hmm. it's over. This is not as shitty as the alternative. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Anything but, is better than the alternative, you know, like even yeah. if it's getting strung out on fucking pills or, you know, blowing the whole thing. Hey, can't be worse. That's right. what a lot of people think, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know what uh, divining, you know, I, it's, uh, it's, it's a scary time, but yes. I'm glad that you're uh, at least speaking for, for those who have, uh, uh, you know, care about other people uh, and believe in the idea of uh, of a inclusive and tolerant democracy i just like you know right now i mean it's probably pretty good for business for you right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i can't now don't, you know i would i would rather we not be in this position right but i mean yes it's not you know it's what? not going to be bad for me i don't think unless it's bad for everybody it, right, all at you, once yes exactly <laughs> yeah so what is the uh the sitcom uh how'd that pitch happen what what what's the show idea um so you know, Warner Brothers had come to me, wanted to do a development deal, but they because wanted, of the book, because of no, because of the videos. And oh yeah, the, and they came and saw some of my live shows, right, and right. you know, whatever scouted me a little See bit. See if you got the go. goods. Yeah. And then I signed a deal with them, and they were like, you know, here's the deal: we want your voice, but you don't know what the fuck you're doing. You know what I mean? They were more, <laughs> more right. diplomatic, but they're like, you're brand new to this, so we're going to pair you with somebody, a writer, uh, and you will, but you will have. A say in that sure. you go through that whole process that's the way they go yeah. so i did all that and i got paired up uh with these two guys rob thomas and john Embaum. yeah they co-created uh rob thomas has been around for a while he yeah. has he did veronica mars yeah and uh him and john did uh party down yeah that show? oh sure sure yeah. yeah and uh rob does i zombie right now anyway i got and rob's from texas yeah right? so uh i got partnered with them and then the show concept we put together was you know based around my life for my point of view but it's not autobiographical or anything but you know i mentioned earlier oak ridge national lab all that shit yeah, yeah. in oak ridge so sure. it's like a guy who's from who grew up poor in like a trailer or whatever in a town like that like oak ridge tennessee sure. where right. it, you know it's a redneck shitty little redneck town except there's also these world-class scientific facilities or whatever all right right he he left at 18 delete never wanted to come back or whatever but now at like 30 he's got a job opportunity he's a scientist right? oh yeah, he yeah, yeah. A, and he's got a job opportunity he can't pass up at 
the lab. Right. And so he's moving back home with his wife from California to uh. work at this lab in the town where he grew up. So now he's surrounded again by right. uh, his old redneck buddies and his, you know. With his wife from California yeah, and his and, highfalutin job. Yeah, and exactly. And his mom is just getting out of prison. Oh, right? wow. Which, again, that's somewhat so autobiographical. Where are you in the process? Where are you in the development process? We're uh, writing the pilot right now. We actually just turned it in. So Oh, we'll good. We'll How'd it come how out? Good? I mean, I, I mean, yes, I feel good about it. I've been stressing about it like a motherfucker unsurprisingly yeah but i mean i feel pretty good about it so all right you know, man we'll, so we'll see how it goes well congrats on the uh, success and uh Thank you know you. I, I i hope uh, the best for all of us and it's nice that you're <laughs> out there uh providing that uh connectivity and relief for uh for like-minded people i just hope that at some point uh hopefully the the effect will spread yeah, I, yeah. right I, I know i hear you believe me me too i yeah. hope so too all right buddy Thank you. All right. Well, that was interesting in, in terms of uh, getting to know somebody from a different part of the country than me with, uh, you know, some real life experience about it. And I'm glad he's out there talking. Maybe I'll play some guitar. Boomer lives!